teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you so much, Tim and Megan, for leading us in worship and song. Beautiful songs. I don't know about you guys, but do you often think about heaven when you're singing together corporately like this? My thoughts always go there. And uh, I was holding my six-year-old little girl, Demi, uh, in the back. And uh, as we were singing uh, one of the songs, and I said, Demi, you want to know what heaven will be like? It's going to be all people corporately singing like this, worship songs unto, unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, I think uh, this particular dynamic here with our, our little ones here and all of that provides us with great opportunities to kind of point them in the direction of the gospel. Amen? As we, uh, we gather together. So, so happy to be together tonight. And um, a few weeks ago, uh, just to, for clarity's sake, on September 11th, we actually combined uh, our fellowship groups, our adult fellowship groups, on a Sunday morning. Uh, how many of you were able to actually make that? Okay. So there were a few of you there. And um, this basically is part two of that particular two-part series. And basically the design of that combined time with our adult fellowship groups was really to talk about what I, what I entitled Essentials of Fellowship Groups. And the whole uh, thinking behind that is, uh, as a leadership, we want to make more of an intentional push for a greater degree of involvement and participation in our adult uh, Sunday morning fellowship groups. Um, but rather than just telling people to get involved, we want to focus on what Scripture actually has to say about fellowship and the importance of that. The importance of plugging into body life. Um, we don't only want to tell people to do something. We want to give the biblical priorities and the principles underlying those things. Amen? And so that was really the design. And um, I admit, I confess to you, I wrestled with bringing in uh, people that were already plugged into fellowship groups in order to encourage them, the faithful, to be faithful to that. But I think there is great value in terms of our unity and our interconnectedness as a body, to be speaking about these things so that we're on the same page and excel still more. Amen? And not only that, but I think that it's important for us to be able to crystallize in our, t- in our thinking all the more and solidify in our thinking the biblical principles that, that drive our pursuit of fellowship, of intense relationships with one another that, by which we are speaking the truth to one another in love. It's very important for us to solidify those truths in our hearts and minds, the faithful, so that we might continue to pursue articulating these things to others who are not plugged in. All right? So I want you to know that this is basically part two of that particular endeavor. All right? So let me open our time in prayer. Father, we just thank you so much for these songs that remind us of your glory. They remind us of the fact that we are one body, in Christ. And it is because of Him that we are able to gather together and to sing these songs because of His atoning death and resurrection. It is because of 
your son, that we are able to have a right relationship with you and we are able to have open access so that we gather corporately in prayer and break down into groups like this and, and speak to you openly. We just thank you so much. We just want to be reminded tonight of the, the beauty of the fellowship that we share, Lord. We want to be reminded of the fact that you are the reason why we are able to gather in this fashion. And so we pray that even now, Lord, you might bless our time in your word. But as we talk about these biblical principles, Lord, that we might be ready and eager to be doers of your word and not merely hearers who are self-deceived. And we ask you all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, a few weeks ago, uh, we talked about the first of, of three, what I call fellowship group essentials. And before we actually got into that first essential, if you go back and listen to that, uh, we wrestled a bit with the meaning and the importance of Christian fellowship. Um, we were reminded that when we speak of fellowship, of the Christian term koinonia, we are speaking of something far deeper and more significant, I think, than what we typically think of. Christian fellowship is, first and foremost, grounded in the gospel. We talked a little bit about that. Christian fellowship is based upon our union with Christ. This intimate love bond that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ, almost as in a triangular relationship with Christ at the top, uh, you on the one side of that triangle and other believers on the other side. Christian fellowship is based upon this beautiful love triangle. We are intricately and indestructibly connected to one another in this beautiful love bond. And the more we understand that personal, intimate love relationship that we share because of what Christ has done, and the more we understand that love relationship that we have with one another, other believers, the more we're going to be eager to plug into the life of the church. Amen? The more joyful and rich our times will be. The less petty our times, will, our interaction with one another will be, where we will not take every issue into a, an opportunity for conflict, but rather we're reminded that we are indestructibly connected in a relationship. A beautiful relationship. And we will be able to work through some of those things together by means of His Spirit and God's Word. Now before we review the first essential we covered, I want to tell you that I recognize that many of you are here tonight in a family fellowship service because you know and consider fellowship importance. important. Amen? That's why you're here. Uh, perhaps you would consider yourself part of that core group of people at CBC. You are connected to what's going on. You are, you are about giving yourself for the service of other people. If I asked you to raise up your hand, you would probably be able to list off ten different ministries that you're a part of right now. I have no doubts about that. I want to commend you and, and just encourage you to continue to excel still more in that faithfulness. And yet, I am still talking to you tonight. I am still, still speaking to the faithful tonight. And it is because of this, because of the fact that there is great value in us being reminded of fellowship and our biblical conviction of fellowship, so that we are equipped to articulate to others the importance of them assimilating into the body of Christ as well. It is not about a me and God relationship. It is about me having been reconciled to this Creator God by faith in Christ Jesus, being assimilated into this body of Christ and intentionally and purposefully looking for opportunities to fold others into the, the life of this body. And so we have to be equipped to be able to do that. You and I are called to be disciple-making disciples. 
Many of you have heard that before. We are called to reproduce ourselves, to make disciples. And as it pertains to other believers here at CBC, we need to be biblically armed so that we can encourage others not to forsake the assembling of themselves with other believers. It is not enough to simply tell people, get involved. You need to do this, do that. Get involved in this ministry, get involved in that ministry. You and I need to show them from Scripture, and I would add from your own personal experience, as you've seen the fruit of the Word in your life, why being connected is not optional. Amen? So this gives great value in the faithful being reminded of these things. You see, there are other people who attend CBC, genuine believers who are not actively participating in the life of this church. They're not connected. And I say this because attendance, though highly recommended, does not equal active participation, does it? Just because someone shows up, even to all the gatherings, doesn't mean that they are connected to the life of the church just today. My wife and I spent some time with some dear saints from this church, and someone shared that there was a brother in Christ who's been coming here for a few months, who just basically welled up with tears, shares with this godly lady, Sister, I just don't feel like I am connected to the, to the church. I don't feel like I have friendships here, and I've tried, and I'm making an effort, and I will continue to do that, but I don't feel connected to this body. There's one example right there. I, for one, am so thankful that people show up to gatherings. I'm so thankful that people are here. That's a start, but it should not stop there, right? It doesn't stop there. I want to see people, as a, as a servant of Christ, I want to see people assimilated into the life of the church, building relationships with one another, profiting from other Christians, inviting others' input into their lives. I want to see people using their gifts and their abilities to build up the church of Christ. Amen? So that God is glorified in all things. That's what I want to see as a servant of Christ. And that should be all of our heart's desires. So my hope is that as we talk about these things again and go into the second and third uh, fellowship group essentials, that the core people, many of you here, might solidify your personal convictions about Christian fellowship so that you might put that conviction into practice by encouraging others biblically why it's important to participate in body life. And that those that are not actively participating might be encouraged to plug into the life of the church all the more. Amen? That's what we want to see. With that in mind, we came up with a working definition back back September 11th, which I actually have on your little handout there, of what Christian fellowship is. And we said this, Christian fellowship is rooted in and motivated by the gospel. We talked about our union with Christ. This intimate, personal love bond that we have with Christ. Christian fellowship is rooted in and motivated by the gospel. And tonight we want to talk about this part. And finds expression in the mutual sharing of and participating in one another's lives. Whereby believers mutually care for and encourage one another, primarily by means of the Word of God and prayer, with the common goal of growing into conformity to Christ as individuals and as a corporate body. We talked about in the fellowship group essential number one, we talked about spiritual growth. It's already there on your handout. That last part of that definition, that everything is for the common goal of growing into conformity to Christ as individuals, and notice, as a corporate body. 
When Pastor Carnes was preaching through the book of Ephesians, I hope you didn't miss that. We are how many bodies? One body, one church, one building. There's an indestructible oneness that we share. Fellowship group essential number one was spiritual growth. And this first essential really deals with our relationship to Christ and to the Word of God. By way of review, we said that the goal of every believer is to grow into conformity to Christ, individually, and then as a church corporately, to be like Christ. We want to experientially know Christ more intimately. We want to love Christ more intensely. And we want to serve Christ more selflessly and sacrificially. That is a good summary of the Christian life right there, right? I want to know Christ more intimately, love Christ more intensely, and I want to serve Christ more selflessly and sacrificially. That's the Christian life right there. It's all about Christ. It's all about knowing Him, loving Him, serving Him. Amen? And the undisputable primary instrument, we said, by which we grow is the Word of God. The Word of God is a sword of the Spirit. The Word of, the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and convicts us so that as we apply the Word of God in the power of the Spirit, we are conforming to the image of Christ in our thoughts, in our attitudes, in our words, and in our actions. We are growing in accordance with the Word of God in the hands of the Spirit of God. And we said that this is why teaching, whether in our fellowship groups on Sunday mornings, or in our youth groups, in our small groups, with our children's ministries... In our small groups, men's small groups or women's small groups, teaching is the centerpiece of everything that we do at Calvary. Everything. We do our best to teach the Word clearly, accurately, and compellingly, and practically so that believers can grow into conformity to Christ. Amen? The Word of God is the primary sanctifying means in the hands of the Spirit of God. That's why our Lord Jesus... In John 17, 17 said this, you know the verse, Sanctify them in thy truth, thy word is truth. Right? Thy word is truth. So if spiritual growth into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ is essential in our fellowship groups and in everything that we do, then the word of God must be taught, delighted in, embraced, and appropriated into our life by the Spirit of God. Spiritual growth. The Word of God reveals God, reveals His glory and His plan to glorify Himself through the redemption of sinners. So we must allow the Word of Christ to dwell in us richly. So spiritual growth is fellowship group essential number one. And if you want to get more, um, you want to go back and listen to part one, you can do that, alright? That's just by way of review. Fellowship group essential number two, there on your, on your uh, little handout, is this. Deliberate discipleship. Deliberate discipleship. In our fellowship groups, and in really everything that we do, we want to cultivate purposefully an environment of deliberate discipleship. Deliberate discipleship. And this particular essential really deals with our relationship to the church, to the people of God. If Christ's likeness is the goal of every Christian, we affirm that. The question is, what is the role and the function of the church in growing and maturing believers? In other words, do other Christians play an active role in Kempis Hernandez's pursuit of knowing, loving, and serving Christ? I think we would affirm that others do, right? You see, many people live very individualistically. 
As I mentioned, it's this me and God mentality as though this is correct thinking and they can grow on their own. Others think that by merely attending church activities or functions or events, that they're living out biblical Christianity. Church is a place that they go to rather than a community of people with whom they're identified with and are on mission with here on earth. So under the second essential of deliberate discipleship, I want to make this point. Listen, growing in Christ-likeness involves your deliberate active participation in the lives of others and vice versa. You must be inviting others to participate in your life as well. When we speak about deliberate discipleship, we're talking about something far more comprehensive than than attending church events or being program-driven. If we go back to our definition of fellowship, we said that Christian fellowship is rooted in and motivated by the gospel. That's where it begins. That's where we build depth in our understanding of fellowship. But listen, it finds expression in the mutual sharing of and participating in one another's lives. Whereby we, as believers, are mutually caring for and encouraging one another primarily by means of the Word of God in prayer. And we have a common goal, and that is to grow into conformity to Christ. When we understand what fellowship means, and we understand the significance of fellowship, listen, we don't leave our our, our understanding there. It must drive us to action. This union with Christ and with one another must 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 be lived out in the way that we sacrifice for one another. The way that we serve other people. The way that we invite others into our lives to participate in our lives. The way that we engage one another in fellowship and in sweet communion. Amen? It has to drive us to action. That's why I define fellowship as expressed in mutual sharing of lives. It is much more than seeing each other for two hours on a Sunday morning. I know you would say a hearty amen to that. It's more than attending a couple of hours of a a special event. As we talk about deliberate discipleship, however, we need to define some terms, okay? Um, the more I study this, the whole issue of what a disciple is and what discipleship means, the more I'm convinced that we need to continue to be reminded of these things so that we understand what a disciple means and what discipleship signifies more comprehensively. Biblically, a disciple is a person, I would boil it down to this, who has first of all repented of his or her sins and confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior from the heart. Would you agree with that? Repentance from their sins and confession of Jesus as Lord and Savior of their lives. Secondly, there is a present commitment to trust in Christ alone for your salvation and to be actively following Him, seeking to walk in loving obedience to Him. It isn't enough just to point back to a moment Are you actively trusting in Christ? Are you living in loving obedience before your Lord and Savior? Is your desire to pursue Him and to love Him and to know Him and to serve Him? But thirdly, a disciple, and listen to this, is a person who is committed to reproducing him or herself into others, sharing the message of the gospel in word and deed in content, and in the way that we live before others. You are committed as a disciple to multiplying yourself and reproducing yourself into the lives of others. It's this element of discipleship that I want to emphasize in this essential. 
that of reproducing ourselves in the lives of others and vice versa. Most of us, as I mentioned, have can look back at some point or another where we turn from our sins and trust in Christ. Most of us are committed to obeying the Lord and doing what is right before Him. But I wonder how many of us truly live striving to be disciple-making disciples. Investing ourselves into others. Reproducing ourselves as disciples is part and parcel of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Amen? It is. But in the busyness of life, And in all of our activities and in every dynamic of life, it's so easy to put that one on the back burner. And it becomes a very private private Christianity between myself and God. And we need to be investing ourselves into others. Now what is discipleship then? What is discipleship? I define it this way. Discipleship is the process that we enter upon conversion of growing and maturing as devoted learners... Lovers and servants of Christ. And discipleship is this lifelong process because we are never perfected on this earth, right? It's this lifelong process of growing and maturing as devoted learners and lovers and servants of Christ. And listen, beloved, discipleship then, as it pertains to our relationship and interaction with one another, involves more than gaining knowledge. That is certainly essential. Discipleship is more than doing ministry tasks or handing off tasks to others and saying that we've discipled them. Some people think that discipling someone is just pounding biblical information into them or giving them things to do. And that's discipleship. We've discipled them sufficiently. But I submit to you that positively, discipleship has everything to do, listen, with building relationships with one another. Biblical principles, the 40 plus one another's in the New Testament, are expressed visibly in our social interaction with one another. Amen? They take expression in the way that we deal with one another, our interaction with one another. Discipleship has everything to do with building relationships with the goal of both people seeking to be conformed to the image of Christ. Discipleship means you are personally involved in someone's life. Discipleship means that you are teaching someone the Word of God in in word, and you are seeking to be an example to them by your very life. In a discipleship relationship, you're taking the opportunity to continually, lovingly encourage and challenge another person to apply the things that you are learning and that they are learning. In a discipleship relationship, you and I are motivated by love for someone and a desire for their spiritual growth. So much so that you are willing to self-sacrificially invest yourself into the life of someone else and vice versa. That is discipleship. It has everything to do with this personal relationship that you're pursuing with other people for the progress of the gospel in their lives and in your life. Now, we can say what discipleship is, but is there biblical precedent for discipleship? Do we see these kinds of things lived out in the very pages of Scripture in the lives of people? And the answer is yes, right? Certainly we have the example, the supreme example of the ultimate disciple maker. Who was that? Jesus Himself. What do you see in the Gospels? Jesus, our Lord Jesus, invites individuals to follow Him. And then He teaches them content 
He invested into them life-giving words. And they watch His example modeled. So not only content, He's teaching them continually throughout the Gospels, but then He models for them and exemplifies for them what those principles look like. They see His mercy and His compassion. They, they come alongside of Him as He deals very lovingly and graciously and personally with people who are hurting at various stages in life, with various illnesses. And then we see Him passing on opportunity for service to His disciples. They've heard Him. They've watched Him. Now they pass on opportunities for them to serve. In Matthew 10, He sends them out two by two to go proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And then they come back and there's this mentoring, this talking about things and helping them grow and think through ministry together. That is discipleship. The perfect model of discipleship is our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And then we see it in the life of Paul with multiple individuals. You could name them. Timothy, Titus, Mark, and many others. In fact, you can make the, the, the argument that the Pauline letters are essentially discipleship letters. There are tons of discipleship principles embedded in those letters. In fact, let's go to 1 Thessalonians, okay? 1 Thessalonians, I want you to see this. Chapter 2. Paul in chapter 1 gives thanks for the Thessalonians. He prays for them. And then in chapter 2 and verse 7, he says this. Notice. But we prove to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having so fond an affection for you. There's the motivation. Because of their love for them, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, there's the investment of content, right? We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also, listen, our own lives. Because you had become very dear to us. So we're imparting to you content, the gospel, but also their own lives. There's this sharing and participating of lives. And they had an opportunity to see the apostles live before them. Verse 9, notice the sharing of and participating in one another's lives. For you recall, brethren, our labor and our hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. There's the, the teaching component again. And verse 10, you are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you, as a father would his own children, and here's the goal of discipleship, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. There's the goal. But you see this life-on-life discipleship dynamic with Paul and the apostles and these Thessalonian believers teaching them content and living their very lives before them and the sharing and participating of lives together. How beautiful is that, huh? Beautiful. Are these principles, you think, only, only uh, pertinent to great leaders like Paul? What would you say? No. Think about Titus chapter 2. In Titus chapter 2, Paul writing to Titus in that particular letter, he says in chapter 2, he exhorts, Titus to teach those things which are fitting for sound doctrine in chapter 2 verse 1 of Titus. 
And then he instructs how the older men are to conduct themselves. And then he instructs in chapter 2, verses 2 and following, how the older women are to conduct themselves so that they might be an example to the younger women, right? There's that discipleship dynamic. And then he instructs Titus and says, Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. And he says to Titus, In all things, show yourself to be an example of these things. There's this encouragement of, 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 from Paul to Titus that there needs to be this continual modeling and exemplifying of relationships in the body of Christ. This investing of lives, this into lives, this sharing and participating in one another's lives for the sake of the example toward Christ-likeness. In 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul instructs Timothy to entrust the things that he's taught Timothy to other faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There's this passing on of this content, but in also this life-on-life discipleship that Timothy had an opportunity to see in the life of Paul. This is to be a body-life dynamic, right? This personal investment into one another's lives is, is non-negotiable in the Christian life. It's not just for the elite super-Christians. It's for all of us. There shouldn't be any reason why we shouldn't ask for a show of hands here and you should be able to share in some way, shape, or form how you are right now in little baby steps or big steps investing yourself into the life of somebody else. How you are using your gifts and your abilities to grow other believers so that they might become conformed to the image of Christ. There shouldn't be any reason why someone isn't investing into you right now in some informal or formal manner. This is to be a life-on-life dynamic that we have. But we know that it takes deliberate effort, doesn't it? Discipleship is cultivated, yes, in the flow of life, as we are purposefully participating and sharing lives together, but we have to spend time, quality and quantity of time together. We have to be intentional and prayerful. We have to be taking taking an active interest in the lives of other people. I would encourage all of us to have what I call a loving curiosity for other believers. A loving curiosity for one another. As a servant of Christ, I love the church. I love the people of God. And I want to see, it's exciting to me to come into contexts like these and to be trying to identify people that I've never met or seen before. I love that. Because it's amazing that God has brought to this beautiful place here people made in His image, and we get an opportunity to go and uncover that little gift that He's put in the church. We have to have a loving curiosity for one another like that. And that drives this, this, this dynamic of life-on-life discipleship, when we're personally interested in others. And even more than that, we want, this, we want the glor- Christ to be glorified, that they become conformed to His beautiful image. See? But the issue is that it takes time and sacrifice, does it not? It takes sacrifice and commitment on our part. And we see this dynamic in the book of Acts. I want you to see this. Turn over to Acts chapter 2. Alright? It does take sacrifice. But we are called to nothing different than what the early church was called to. Um, People often highlight the fact that Acts is a descriptive book, not necessarily a prescriptive book. That is, it describes unique events which happen in the life of the early church. And they're not necessarily things that are norm for today. 
And I would agree to some extent or another that that is true. There are many things that happened in the book of Acts that were very particular to the early church. But on the other hand, I think we need to be careful not to throw out the baby with the bathwater. And this is what I mean. That as it pertains to the dynamics of the early church in their social interaction with one another, in the way that we see believers interacting with one another, I think we need to all the more glean from how they participated in the lives of one another. Wouldn't you agree with that? We need to glean from this beautiful dynamic whereby they mutually cared for and encouraged one another. It's something to strive for, even in our context and our fast-paced culture. Whatever that looks like. And I want you to see this beautiful dynamic of sharing of lives in Acts chapter 2. Verse 37. Notice, this is in response to Peter's first sermon. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. And with many other words, Peter solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, verse 41 Those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about three thousand souls. So the church grows from about 120 people to 3,000 people. Now we have a problem. Fellowship could potentially go out the window. There's life on life dynamic, right? Verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. There was this ongoing communion with one another. The sharing of and participating in one another's lives. Verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who believed were together and had all things in common. So there's this singleness of purpose and interconnectedness and unity that they had. Verse 45. There's a spirit of generosity. Notice. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. By the way, you want to know how you make a big church small? Break it down into groups. What did they do? 3,000 people, they're breaking bread from what? From house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Is that too ideal for us? Maybe it's going to look somewhat different, beloved, in our context and given specific dynamics here where we live. But I really believe that we're called to glean from that example of unity and interconnectedness and singleness of purpose. And we are, we are called to strive for the sharing of and participating in one another's lives. Mutually encouraging one another. Seeking to live life-on-life life discipleship. Amen? That is what we are called to. But it does come at a high price. It does come at a very, very high price. Maybe you say, well, that was just the early church, Right? I mean, that was like the early stages of the early... Surely, nobody else really exhorts people to live that way anymore in the Scriptures. Turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. 
I think it's important. The main point in the book of Hebrews, if you were to summarize it as this, Christ is better. Christ is better than the angels, better than Moses, better than the old covenant priesthood, better than the sacrificial system. So we need, the writer of Hebrews encourages and exhorts believers to hold on to Jesus by faith alone because He is the one who has inaugurated a better covenant, a new covenant. Christ is better. So He exhorts them throughout to to hold on to the confession of their faith, to hold on to Christ alone. To endure unto the end. And his whole reason for going into Hebrews chapter 11 in the hall of faith is to point them to examples and models of those who persevered by faith unto the end, right? But listen to this. I find this amazing. One of the beautiful, amazing ways in which we are encouraged to endure the Christian life by faith and finish the race is through our mutual edifying of one another. And look at this in chapter 3, verse 12. Amidst these warnings, where the writer of Hebrews is encouraging these believers, hold on to your confession. Hold on to Christ alone. He says in chapter 3, verse 12, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And what is an antidote against that unbelief? Verse 13, But encourage one another... That's the word parakaleo, to come alongside of one another. Come alongside of one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see that? Christ is better. Hold on to Christ alone. Persevere until the end by faith. And one of the ways that you can do that is by your mutual encouraging of one another day after day, as long as it is called today. Isn't that beautiful? What beautiful role we play in one another's lives. It's like the, the runner who is, who is in this race and he's faltering toward the end of this race and all of a sudden somebody hands him a, a cup of water, cool water. And this guy drinks that cup of water and is revitalized and refreshed and he finishes the race. That is the role that we have in one another's lives. To encourage one another, to uphold one another. See? Look at this in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, verse verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And listen to this. And let us consider how to stimulate, that is the idea of stirring or provoking someone to action. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This type of encouragement doesn't just happen. We must deliberately and purposefully seek to have that role in the lives of one another. Amen? So that we pursue this beautiful dynamic called life-on-life discipleship together. We must be deliberate in this. Now, I know that all of you will give a hearty amen to that. Deliberate discipleship, though, comes at a great cost, does it not? It takes sacrifice to invest ourselves into the lives of one another. 
It takes time, it takes prayer, it takes resources, it takes physical investment, it takes patience as you watch somebody grow, as you watch them struggle with sin, and you go back and pick them back up and you encourage them with the Word. It takes time. It takes denying ourselves of our comforts. Amen? There's a lot of sacrifice that goes into this. So if we are to invest ourselves into others, it's going to take time. It's going to take us putting ourselves aside and putting others before us. But isn't that the very thing that Christ came to do for us? Isn't that the very, the, the very call of discipleship? A call to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after the Lord. That is the life of a disciple, of a follower of Christ. That of putting others before ourselves. I mean, think about it. With so many one another's, how do we, how do these 40 plus one another's in the New Testament get themselves fleshed out? They don't get themselves fleshed out as we spend an hour together a week. These one another's get fleshed out as we take it beyond the Sunday morning dynamic, right? As we are calling one another, as we are spending time together, as we are, as we are pursuing quality and quantity of time together. Beloved, listen, the main service is essential, but it is not sufficient, is it? It's the main event of the week, and the preaching of the Word of God in the main service is the main event within the main event. But it is not sufficient. There's no way that we could practice 40 plus one another's in two hours on a Sunday morning, or even in four hours on a Sunday morning. We have to take it outside of that and be deliberate in our pursuit of other people. Amen? That's what it's all about. Each of us have been given the beautiful set of gifts, abilities you have. Many of you have amazing wisdom. I, I am so encouraged. We had a dear sister in Christ from this body share a testimony with us recently. And I'm amazed at the type of things that, that, that the Lord has done in her life. She discipled me in a half hour uh, testimony. She taught me about what it means to sacrifice, to take five, four or five kids to a foreign country at one point in the past with her husband and to basically lay down their lives with all of these kids for the progress of the gospel in another country. She taught me about sacrifice. She taught me about a commitment to your spouse and marriage as I'm hearing her in this life-on-life dynamic where we're sharing lives together. She taught me about what it means to use your gifts for the building up of the body of Christ behind the scenes where nobody even watches her. How does that happen? Except when we are spending time together, right? We are listening to each other. And there's this beautiful personal relationship being pursued. Now, how do we cultivate then a greater environment of deliberate discipleship? Specific to our, our adult fellowship groups, obviously, but really just as a church. Okay? I want to give us a few things here. First of all, We need to recognize that deliberate discipleship doesn't just happen. So first of all, we must be committed to personally investing ourselves into others. Personally investing ourselves into others. I know that this is an obvious one, okay? But if we're going to be discipleship focused, then we need to realize that we need each other. We need others to invest into us, and we have the need to be investing ourselves into the lives of other people. We need to be actively participating with other believers where this life-on-life dynamic is, is cultivated. Be committed to personally investing yourself into the lives of other people. 
Recognize that you can grow on your own. You have not been called to a monastic Christianity. You've been called to a community of redeemed believers who are all actively pursuing Christ-likeness. Amen? Secondly, we must be committed, listen to this, to relational a relational approach in discipleship. A relational approach in discipleship. I say this because many times people can view others as personal projects. As people that need to be that we need to run around fixing. And we need to remember that that people are made in the image of God and they are persons, right? They are human beings. And as such, we need to interact with them with genuine love and care and concern for them rather than just because we want to mold them into who we want them to be. We need to be relational in our approach and pursuit of people. I once spoke to someone who was discouraged, a faithful saint in a different body. And we were talking about how she was doing, and this lady basically says to me, you know, I am faithful, I'm faithfully serving, but I always feel like people are trying to fix me here. It's never, how, you, how are you doing? We, I care for you. There's a love and genuine concern for you. I always feel like I'm a project to people. I don't feel cared for here. And I think that if we're not careful, some people can run around in the church thinking that they're God's gift to the church. And it's, and it's our job basically to spend time with people so we just put them in their place and we fix them. We need to be very careful, beloved. Having a desire to see people grow into conformity to Christ does not mean that every time we spend time with them we're throwing around verses at them and trying to fix them and put them in their place. Right? Take a, relation, a personal interest in people. Get to know them. Really understand what's going on in their hearts and lives so that we might be properly able to, to assess how to help them. The other thing is this, kind of closely related to that issue. We must be committed to being discipleship-focused and not event- or program-focused. And let me explain that, okay? There is a difference between being event-focused or program-driven as opposed to being discipleship-focused. Listen, it's possible to be doing meaningful vibrant discipleship, and not necessarily be running a whole lot of programs, events, and activities in the church. Wouldn't you agree with that? The same is not true the other way around. In other words, you can be very program, event, activity focused, and not be doing significant discipleship. Why? Because people can show up to events and multiple activities in the church, and not be getting to know one another. Because we're so busy running the programs running the events, making sure everything is administered to perfectly so that we have a well-oiled machine. And then people walk out, and you ask them, who did you talk to? Who did you relate to? Nobody. But we ran a pretty good event. Right? You can show up to events and multiple activities in the church, beloved, but not be getting to know anyone or positioning yourself for spiritual growth by focusing on the people who are actually attending the event rather than just running the program or the plethora of events. Let's remember that ministry is people, right? Ministry is people. And this means that we are not just concerned about running a machine. We are about caring for people. Even as we provide opportunities for them to serve, it's about a personal pursuit of them. Over the years, I've interacted with so many Christians 
who are very faithful to serving in the church. Precious, faithful servants. And I met one lady at another church very actively serving multiple ministries. And I commended her for her involvement as I'm talking to her. And right after I commended her, she starts welling up with tears. And I'm like, oh no, what did I say? I just stuck my foot in my mouth yet again. You know? And I apologized to her. I said, I'm, I'm so sorry if I've offended you. What did I say? Did I say anything to offend you? She said, Kempis, you didn't say anything to offend me. What it is, is she says, I, I'm not close to anyone here. So I'm involved in multiple ministries, but I feel so alone in the Christian life and so spiritually dry. I don't feel like I know anyone. And she was active, serving at every event. It was even a smaller church. But she didn't have any encouragement or accountability with anyone. If we're going to be discipleship focused, beloved, we need to realize that ministry is about people. Amen? Ministry is about people. I love this quote by one pastor. He says, I love the church. Christian proclamation might make the gospel audible, but Christians living together in local congregations make the gospel visible, he says. The church is the gospel made visible. You see, as we share and participate in one another's lives for the glory of God, we exemplify before the, the watching world how beautiful Christians living in harmony can, can, can love one another. See? And we adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect in that way. We make Christ high and exalted. All right? All right, in our last few minutes here, third essential, they're on your little outline. And we're going to go very quickly through this one, okay? It is gospel mission. Gospel mission. And we were going to go back into Acts chapter 1, but you've heard in many sermons, multiple pastors and elders here, the ongoing uh, 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 heralding of the fact that our mission here on earth is to make disciples, right? In Acts chapter 1, a few weeks ago, we, we taught in the main service that we exist as a church, and I would say as fellowship groups, to continue the work of Jesus here on earth, which is to make disciples. Amen? And secondly, we looked at the fact that as a church, we continue this work of making disciples in the power of the Spirit of God. And we exist as a church to continue this work by means of the proclamation of the gospel of Christ in word and deed. We are ministers, witnesses of the risen Christ, and we are about proclaiming the gospel. And I wonder how much in our fellowship groups are we really emphasizing that? I need to challenge myself, even in our fellowship group, to be reminding people of the fact that we are on mission here on earth. And that as we hear testimonies of people getting up in the front of our fellowship group, that we should be sharing with one another how God is using us to witness to someone. How we could be praying for them in their opportunities to share the gospel with someone in their neighborhood. Encouraging one another to invite unbelievers into our homes so that we might be able to share the gospel and, and show how we live the gospel. I wonder how many of us are intentional about inviting people to these times on Sunday nights. To our Sunday morning worship services, beloved. If we really believe that we are on gospel mission, then it has impact for the way that we reach out to the unbelieving world. Does it not? In our neighborhoods. In our work environments. We shouldn't be afraid of bringing unbelievers into our Bible studies. Why? So that we could change things around and make it seeker friendly? No! So that we might show them the gospel and extend compassion and mercy to them and be preaching about this Christ who is beautiful and exalted and there is nothing better than the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so I would encourage us to excel still more in that as it pertains to our ministry to the unbelieving world. We were going to go there, but 2 Corinthians 5, 17-21, you read it on your own. Paul talks about the ministry of reconciliation. That we have been reconciled to God. And typically when two parties are at enmity with one another, it is typical that the one who has offended the other person is the one who seeks reconciliation, right? But the beauty of what God did in the gospel is that He sought us, and yet we offended Him, and we were under His wrath, and we sinned against Him. But God, in His Son, reconciled us to Himself. Isn't that beautiful? And so when we say that we are on a gospel mission, we remember that as it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17-21, not only have we been reconciled to God, but He has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Amen? Amen? He has given us that ministry. And He says we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. That's the message that we take to a lost world, beloved. We are ambassadors. It's this picture of this, in ancient times, of this, this messenger who would go in the village and he would prepare the way for the king who was coming in. And his message to the people there were, get ready for him, he is coming, the ruler, the king is coming, submit to his rule or you're done. That is what we are doing. We are on mission here on earth to proclaim the message of Christ that the king is returning and he has mercifully provided a way of salvation and the forgiveness of sins. That's what we, are, what we are about here. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In our fellowship groups and in the life of our church, beloved, we've said this before, let's not become comfortable with an us for no more mentality. Let's be intentional and purposeful. If we have home Bible studies and home groups, why not invite people in the community to come in and hear the message of the Word of God? Why not live the gospel before people? Don't compromise the truth. But show mercy and compassion to people the way that God reached out to you. We ought to be displaying that type of love to others. Amen? And even in our fellowship groups, how do we spur this love for gospel mission all the more? We hear testimonies and we should be asking each other, who are you reaching, currently reaching out to? Or should we be praying for that you're reaching out to and you are trying to fold in to this beautiful entity called the church? Who are you calling to repentance and confession of the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? That is how we spur that on. And also, and this is how we'll conclude, this third essential of gospel mission has to do with this. And we mentioned it a little bit already. Not only, I want us to think of gospel mission as as. Basically, two different components, two arms. One is obviously our outreach to the unbelieving world. But also, beloved, listen, if we are on gospel mission, then we need to recognize that we who are believers have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And as such, we are children of the king. Amen? And as children of the king, listen to me, you have siblings who are also children of the king in this church. And there are children of the king in this church who are not assimilated into this church body life. And we need to be all the more intentional and purposeful if we are gospel missional kinds of people to assimilate other people in this body into our fellowship groups in every way, shape, or form that we can. 
Have people be the go-getters in your fellowship groups or in any other context. Two or three people who are specifically assigned to watch out for any stragglers in our body. Let's have a go-getter kind of mentality. That we go out and we reach out to these people and we ask them what's going on in life and invite them to be a part of our fellowship groups so that they might be identified with a particular shepherding care group. There are exceptions to that, I know. There are people who are involved in children's ministries and youth ministries. Praise the Lord for their faithfulness, right? But even those people can, I be, can be identified with a fellowship group for shepherding care and accountability. And they can be invited to other functions. Because you, I've talked to some of them. They, don't, they feel like they're serving, giving, 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 but they don't have any people that are around them to encourage them. And they're not really invited to any of our functions. Not because we don't want to invite them, but because we're not thinking that way many times. So let's be deliberate about gospel mission. Assimilation. We must be passionate about folding other other children of God into the life of our church. Amen? We need to be very, very careful, beloved, with cliques. And with hanging out with the the same group of people because we're very comfortable with the same group of people. And it should not be that in any of our fellowship groups or different contexts, in our small groups, that for years and years and years we've had the same people in that particular fellowship group, fellowship groups or small groups. It should not be the case. There should be new people being assimilated. There should be new converts coming to know the Lord, baby believers that we can feed with the milk of the Word and grow into conformity to Christ-likeness. Amen? There should be that. And that takes a deliberate approach to discipleship. That takes being gospel missional kinds of believers. Alright? Well, praise the Lord for our time. In our fellowship groups and in everything that we do, let's excel at spiritual growth, deliberate discipleship, and gospel mission, beloved. Alright? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this time that we're able to have in your word, Lord. And Lord, we know that you said... I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. At the end of the day, Lord, you're the one that causes the growth. At the end of the day, you are the one who is, who is building your church, who is adding and enlisting other soldiers, other converts into the church. You are the one that is, that is growing believers into greater conformity to yourself. But Lord, we know that we have a part to play. And we need to be purposeful and intentional, Lord. And we need to be like-minded. And we need to be interconnected in a singleness of purpose, Lord, in everything that we do. I pray that we might do that, Father. I pray that spiritual growth, growing into conformity to your image, might be a priority that we might deliberately pursue. I pray that life-on-life discipleship, Father, would be pursued. That we might be willing to invest ourselves into one another's life. To share lives together. To participate in the lives of one another, Lord. So that we might grow into conformity to your Son's image. And Lord, I pray that you give us a greater heart for the lost. A greater heart, Lord, of mercy and compassion. The same that you've displayed to us. And I pray that you give us a greater heart for our siblings who are kingdom citizens. To see them folded into this body to see them built up, to see them encouraged, Lord, to see them using their gifts and their abilities for the building up of your church. Lord, please give us that heart and help us, Father, above all, to love one another because by this, all men will know that we are your disciples because we love one another. In Jesus' name, amen.